Lessons from the COVID-era welfare expansion, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. After COVID struck, bipartisan policymakers expanded social welfare programs, increased flexibility, reduced burdens, and tried a unique expansion of the child tax credit. But then many of the programs and changes expired. Now Congress is considering a bit of a revival of the child tax credit expansion, but recipients of traditional welfare programs won't see equivalent gains. Did policymakers learn the right lessons from the successes and failures of the COVID-era expansion? Are we returning to the same patterns or actually reducing burdens? This week, I talked to Carolyn Barnes of the University of Chicago about her multiple articles interviewing recipients of the Women, Infants, and Children's Program, SNAP, Food Stamps, and Medicaid. She finds that remote appointments helped, but some program changes confused recipients. She says we're back to a period of retrenchment, but administrators are trying to adapt when they have incentives to do so. I also talked to Marielle Lopez-Santana of George Mason University about her article with Lucas Nunez and Daniel Valand, Assessing Public Support for Social Policy in Times of Crisis. She finds that support for the child tax credit expansion was not as high as for other programs because families were not perceived as that deserving, and that even recipients were not converted to program advocates. Let's start with Barnes, who studies how to reduce administrative burdens in social welfare programs. So uh, let's start uh, with the good news. Uh, You found that uh, the COVID era uh, forced administrators to allow uh, remote appointments uh, for access to the Women, Infants, and Children uh, program. So what did they do um, and why did it uh, work out? So I um, study barriers to accessing assistance programs, which public administration scholars and political scientists are conceptualizing as administrative burden. And there are three costs learning costs, which is whether or not you know that a program exists and how to apply, Um, compliance costs, which is basically the cost of following all the rules of the program, so submitting the appropriate documents, filling out the applications correctly, responding to the demands of caseworkers and attending appointments and interviews, and then there's psychological costs, which is the stress and stigma you might experience when you're trying to do all of those things. And there's another cost, which is my cost, um, called redemption costs, which focuses on what happens outside of um, your bureaucratic encounter or what you might experience in an agency. So it's the challenges of what you might, um, the challenges of learning how to use the benefits you receive. So this is after you successfully applied for, say, Medicaid. Now you have to take your Medicaid benefit and find um, a doctor who will who will take Medicaid and who will ideally give you a great experience with your Medicaid benefit. Um, so with WIC, uh, as a as a scholar of safety net programs and someone who develops and uses this framework. Um, I like to examine programs that aren't typically focal in the social policy literature. So we know a lot about cash assistance. We're we're learning more about Medicaid, um, especially since the Affordable Care Act was passed. But we don't know a lot about um, how WIC and SNAP work on the ground. And we don't know how WIC, SNAP, and Medicaid and some of these programs work together on the ground for families that are typically experiencing them simultaneously. So the goal for examining WIC and administrative burden um, in WIC is to essentially give like a really rich, thick description of what it's like for for people who are trying to access benefits. Um, And I do that through qualitative research. And uh, prior to COVID, to receive WIC, 
you um, had to do at least four appointments. Two were required in person. You had your initial certification appointment, which is your initial intake, where they determine whether or not you're eligible, and they set you up with benefits. And then you had a recert appointment um, later on in the year, halfway through the year, um, where you had to go in in person and have the same sort of assessment done to determine uh, what your food package would be and where you um, where you lie on the nutritional risk of the, um, the program. So they assess nutritional risk along with income eligibility to determine whether or not you can get the benefits. Um, and then in some states and in some counties, you had to come in person for other the other two appointments um, for issue benefits or benefit issuance, however you want to call it, <laughs> where you would come in and the processing clerk or whoever, um, they call it different things, but um, the processing clerk would load your benefits on a card. Some states and some counties do that remotely and some require you to come in to do that. But with COVID, um, um, the federal government um, allowed states um, to waive those appointment requirements. Uh, so you didn't have to come in, they didn't have to weigh you and poke you and prod you to figure out if you are nutritionally at risk. Um, and instead you would report information over the phone and they would find different ways to verify that information. Like maybe they'd call your doctor's office under your consent um, to figure out like what the baby weighed the last time uh, you took them to their appointment, what you weighed in your last appointment to, um, to figure out your nutritional risk and to prescribe the food package. Um, so you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to go through the in-person appointment during COVID. Um, instead, that happened over the phone. Um, and uh, recipients loved it. <laughs> so I was fortunate enough to do some early data collection. Um, we were already in the field on a SNAPWIC and Medicaid project in North Carolina and in two other states. And uh, when the pandemic hit, uh, we were able to continue to collect data on um, beneficiaries and they loved it. They found it to be very con convenient because they don't have to pay the high compliance costs of going to an appointment that's typically multi-step and extensive. Um, so like, uh, you know, what, what would typically take an hour, maybe an hour, hour and a half um, in a good, efficient clinic is now 15 minutes over the phone. So we can have uh, successful policy changes that reduce administrative burdens, uh, but you've also found that um, new policies uh, sometimes bring with them uh, learning costs uh, for participants that can deter participation. So well, what do those costs look like? Uh, how often are people able to, to overcome them and, and how do things look today? So early on in the pandemic, and by early, I mean the end of March. So we were doing interviews like in real time as these um, COVID era allowances were being implemented. And uh, we started asking people about these, these policy changes. So we'd ask like, well, did you know that your recertification deadline was extended? Uh, for SNAP. So you got you essentially got a year of eligibility. Did you know that you don't have to come in um, and do interviews for SNAP? Did you know that you can use um, your SNAP benefits online? Did you know that for WIC, the, the food allowances have become more flexible? We asked them all these different things and nobody knew. <laughs> no one knew they were learning through us, which is in some way a public service. <laughs> But it's also like, well, good God, what's going on here that 
these um, these big ticket changes that are designed to make people's lives way easier and essentially reduced administrative burdens significantly for uh, beneficiaries and new applicants. How come no one knows about this? So um, I think what we were able to highlight is the importance of um, understanding implementation and um, information sharing. A lot of times um, uh, we have, and, and you know this as a political scientist, there are really well uh, thought out, uh, great policy ideas and legislation, but they get bungled um, uh, when we think about actual implementation and even more bungled when you think of it from, from where I sit, which is frontline implementation. So what's going on in offices. Um, and the, uh, so we have like a series of papers, some of which um, you featured here today, but some of which are, um, being written, right. And we're doing analysis on, um, and we're, we're trying to figure out what the heck happened. Right. So, um, uh, and one of it is, uh, one of the answers is simply that um, in many ways, COVID policies or um, these waivers were essentially an unfunded administrative mandate. Um, so uh, I think what we didn't anticipate or what federal policymakers didn't anticipate uh, was the fact that there'd be so much demand for benefits. Um, and when you have uh, demand increase and significant policy change for street level bureaucrats to understand and implement, there's gonna be gaps. Like there are gonna be folks that are excluded. There are gonna be folks that don't know. There are gonna be um, hiccups in the implementation process. So um, early on, uh, within the first six months of the pandemic, that's what we found. We found that people just were totally unaware of these um, COVID provisions and they didn't know how to ask about them. That was what was more troubling. <laughs> it's like, I don't actually know, like, but I thought my worker would tell me about that. I don't know how that works, right? So, so it's not even that they just, they didn't know. It's that they actually didn't know how to take advantage of these, these um, um, new policies. So um, yeah, that, that's what we, uh, we found early on. And we um, continue to ask similar questions throughout the pandemic and in the post-pandemic recovery. And we do find that people learned. So there is this policy learning thing that happens um, uh, because they weren't short-lived in the sense that they were only online or only implemented, actively implemented for a couple months. They were around for about a year and a half. So people learned. People learned like what to expect. People learned. Um, they learned, uh, especially um, when we think about increased benefits like the pandemic EBT and the emergency allotments with SNAP. People learned and adjusted and got accustomed to a different kind of safety net that was far more generous and far more accessible over time. So one of the other papers that's already made it out uh, is a comparison of uh, the burdens across uh, WIC, SNAP, and Medicaid uh, during, during COVID. So um, you were able to interview beneficiaries of all of them. Uh, what, what did you find? Uh, what, what were the differences and are they able to kind of learn, learn from each other uh, in, in reducing those burdens? It's a similar story to what I just told, uh, that the issue is implementation, <laughs> uh, not the policy itself. Um, so when we were doing the, the interviews, um, we would find people that had applied uh, for benefits and couldn't access them, even though they tried really hard. So, um, for example, because we're we're interested in 
in families that would have connections to multiple programs at once. Sometimes you'd get somebody that managed to get on Medicaid, but couldn't get on WIC or couldn't get on SNAP or managed to get on WIC, but couldn't necessarily get on SNAP and was in the process of getting on Medicaid. So we were able to find folks that were um, applicants who hadn't yet heard back or applicants who never heard back. And I think that was the through line for the findings on that paper that um, for some programs, in particular SNAP, um, uh, for, for SNAP in North Carolina, at least, we found a lot of folks who were eligible or who thought they were eligible for benefits that applied and just never got any response from, um, from workers or from the agency. And uh, we found that in other states too. So um, we have a um, we have some we had interviews in Kentucky and we had interviews in in Pennsylvania, and one respondent described it as like submitting paperwork to a black hole. So you know I don't know where it went. I have no way of engaging these workers um, because at at that time also it was a part of a COVID era practice. A lot of work was done remotely. Um, and when you have remote interviews uh, instead of in-person interviews, you're relying on the worker to pick up the phone, right? To pick up the phone and respond to you. And, um, you know, have, losing the opportunity to engage people in person or to submit the paperwork in person for a lot of participants um, was viewed as sort of an exclusionary practice, right? So like all of that, you know, they've only created one way that I can engage them. There's only one way for me to submit my application. And I know workers are overwhelmed or I know workers are, are in some, in some instances, people reported that they felt like workers were willfully ignoring them, right? So you, you can't get my workers' attention to submit this, this paperwork, uh, which means I'm not going to hear back and I'm not going to get on benefits or I'm going to experience a disruption in benefits. So um, we find um, that for WIC and Medicaid, people have pretty good experiences with getting on the program. I mentioned earlier that folks really did like their remote WIC appointments. And to a degree, people um, liked the fact that they didn't have to come in for their SNAP interview. They also liked the fact that they could report themselves, they could report their income. So they had self um, income attestation, meaning they didn't have to submit a bunch of pay stubs and all of that stuff. So that, you know, eased, um, um, that eased access for, for WIC and Medicaid, but SNAP, SNAP was the, the tricky, uh, program. So, uh, a good portion of our sample reported negative experiences with SNAP and trying to access SNAP during COVID. And they attributed that to, um, the, the sheer demand for the program and the limited ways of reaching caseworkers. Uh, and we have the other side of the story. So we have um, interviewed workers across all three states that work in these, these programs. So we know the story of, of why they were inaccessible. And it really is this inattention to the details of implementation and how demand can outstrip capacity to deliver benefits. So you had been uh, studying these uh, three programs uh, prior to COVID uh, as well. Um, so you've been emphasizing kind of the implementation of the changes, but is there anything about the structure of these three programs that, that makes them uh, different, have just different levels of administrative burdens? Uh, and did the COVID experience just sort of reinforce um, their, their prior differences or did it kind of equalize them? 
so we've been thinking about, or I've been thinking about this intersection across SNAPWIC and Medicaid in part because they're the three programs that have grown since welfare reform and the three programs that people, families with kids under five, so kids, young kids, um, those are the three programs that um, families are likely to be connected to at one point in time. So if you walk down the street and you see a mom um, with, with a preschooler, a low-income mom, not that you would know she was low-income, but if you walk down the street and you encounter um, a mom with preschoolers, she's probably on all three of these programs. Um, so what we learned from interviewing both workers and beneficiaries prior to COVID is that there are some really key differences in the priorities of each program and how they're delivered. So for the beneficiary side, um, one, one interviewee summed it up like this. She said, it's like night and day. So when she engages these programs, they're very distinct. Um, and she noted that, you know, she enjoyed her WIC experiences relative to SNAP and Medicaid. And there's some reasons why. So from um, a WIC administrator's perspective, as I mentioned earlier, um, the, the program is structured to uh, emphasize caseload expansion and retention. So it's, it's funded through a block grant, which typically has the opposite effect. So we see this in TANF, the block granting of cash assistance is what led to welfare reform and people getting kicked off the rolls. WIC is block granted, um, but the emphasis is on keeping people on the roll. So the program is under-enrolled. Um, the coverage rate or the percentage of folks who are eligible and participating is around 50%. Um, it hovers between like 50 and 55%. Um, so, so it's underutilized and it's a block grant program that rewards retention and expansion. So every year, um, your local WIC director is looking at her numbers and if she doesn't meet 95% of her caseload from the previous year, she loses administrative funds. So the money follows the case. The same is the case for childcare, but that's another conversation for another day. But in WIC, the money follows the case um, and there are financial incentives to expand the caseload or at least keep as many people in the program as possible so that you don't lose your administrative dollars. You don't have to fire anybody or you don't have to underinvest in training or pull back on resources you would give um, WIC beneficiaries. With SNAP and Medicaid, um, the rewards are tied to efficiency and accuracy. So um, uh, the rewards are tied to efficiency and accuracy and inefficient and inaccurate delivery of benefits results in sanctions. So um, with SNAP and Medicaid, um, there are bonuses you get if your error rate is really low. So you've accurately processed a case to where um, you're not overpaying someone for uh, benefits that they're not eligible for or underpaying folks. So people aren't getting enough benefits that they're eligible for. And there's also these timeliness requirements. Like there's a percentage of your caseload that should be processed within 30 days, 45 days, 60 days. So 30 days for SNAP, 45 and 60 days for Medicaid. So workers have a completely different orientation to how they're supposed to engage clients. Another thing uh, with WIC is that the, the program is designed to be long-term. So the idea is that you have up to five years of eligibility, and there are these routine interactions that you have with workers over time. So I mentioned the four appointments earlier. So if two of those appointments are, are in person, 
um, and you have two other touch points, that's 20 appointments over time that uh, possibly more if you um, enroll as a pregnant woman, that's 20 appointments collectively over time that you have with your WIC office and they want to be nice to you. <laughs> so you end up forging these more socially supportive uh, ties and interactions with your WIC workers um, in comparison with, with Medicaid and SNAP where the worker wants to get you in and out. So they're not going to have personal conversations with you beyond the contours of eligibility and determining, you know, were there any changes? Are you still eligible for this program? In fact, they're going to try to limit those interactions with you. And um, SNAP, uh, SNAP and Medicaid beneficiaries who are also receiving WIC, they notice the difference. So, so these uh, programs are racialized, at least in the public imagination uh, and probably uh, in some of the experiences of recipients uh, and administrators. Uh, so how much does race matter in the way that these programs are administered and, and perceived? And we might imagine that COVID could have exacerbated that or could have made it um, uh, less, less salient uh, if, if we were in a time when uh, there was more of a perception that we were all going through the same thing uh, at once. So, so how much did race matter? does race matter all the time? Uh, and, and what happened in, in COVID to increase or decrease that salience? That's a complicated question, um, only because I think race always matters. Uh, and I'm not just saying that <laughs> uh, because it's baked into social policy, um, the social welfare state. So if you think about the origins of the social welfare state and the systematic exclusion of Black Americans in particular from benefits, the good ones that are um, the good ones, I shouldn't say that benefits that are universal, like Social Security minimum wage um, and uh, benefits that are more targeted like cash assistance. Um, federalism has always undermined access to those programs, both historically and in, in present day. Like that, that's, that's a well-established, I think, finding, interdisciplinary finding that we have about the role of federalism and exclusion. So the pandemic uh, did precipitate uh, an increase in, in social welfare uh, expansion and an easing of, of requirements um, in, in total. Um, but since then, there's been a political uh, pendulum swing back, uh, including um, winding down a lot of those uh, expansions and easings and a renewed push uh, for, quote unquote, work requirements for some of these social welfare uh, programs. Uh, so how, how did that come about? And do we see that as just kind of another in a long series of, of swing backs uh, against uh, social welfare benefits or uh, a unique pattern that occurred in response to the COVID uh, expansions? So um, when I teach social policy, I frame the evolution and contemporary contours of the welfare state as a story of expansion and contraction that's um, ex where expansion is brought about through crisis and there's this inevitable contraction or retrenchment that happens um, because the origins of these programs are primarily um, political and they do rest on notions of deservingness. So, um, you know, uh, prior to the progressive era when um, communities are trying to figure out how to care for the poor, these notions of who's deserving and who's not, whether or not we should have work requirements, how hard should we make it to, um, to access something like coal <laughs> or like the in-kind aid of the day, 
Um, how hard does why we have poor houses? We want to deter people. So the so the welfare state in its infancy, prior to a national or federal adoption, um, that that's um, really echoing what we see now. Like the the state is a tool of deterrence, deterrence from what um, public dependency. So we don't want taxpayers. Uh, dollars being used to support people who don't want to help themselves. That's a, that's literally it. And we see that now. Like <laughs> It's the same argument. There's not, nothing has changed at all. Americans have a challenge with helping the poor in whatever, whatever way you want to frame that out, whatever the target population looks like. Americans have a hard time with redistribution. Um, and we know this in the literature. There are some conditions where they're, they support it and other conditions where they don't. Um, so um, this uh, pendulum swinging back reflects the sort of historical narrative of how the safety net is developed over time. Um, so we get a federal safety net with the Great Depression. Um, and even then, even then um, some of the early... Um, uh, good night. Some of some of the early uh, programs around work relief, you see the deservingness narrative there. Um, again, as I mentioned earlier, you see the exclusion of marginalized populations, racially marginalized populations from social insurance. Um, so, uh, so we get the federal uh, we get a federal safety net in light of the Great Depression. Um, it's in its infancy, infancy. It gets some steam in terms of uh, constituencies that support dimensions of the policy. So like social security and, <clears throat> and the like. And then we get another sort of introduction of new kinds of benefits with the great society. So we get a service-based or social services oriented um, component of the welfare state in light of racial unrest. So the way <laughs> that we have to calm um, racial unrest and urban unrest is to invest in Head Start. It's to provide in-kind aid programs like um, public health insurance and food stamps. Um, it's to do community action programs. Um, it's to do job training programs. That's how we're going to solve this crisis of unrest and um, racism, a tool to solve or to address racism and inequality. Um, and then we have this long, long, long period of retrenchment where there's this dismantling of New Deal era and great society uh, programs or restructuring, fundamental restructuring of those programs with this whole deservingness notion in mind. Like we did too much for too long and it's costing the taxpayers a lot of money. Roles are too high. Um, so we have to reform welfare or we have to add work requirements. Um, uh, the pendulum swinging back to um, this notion of deservingness and this pattern of retrenchment and underfunding the welfare state or under yeah, underfunding the welfare state. Um, so this is inevitable is what I'm saying. Now, the question is, the question is, what will we pick up from? the pandemic, like what COVID era expansions will we continue um, in light of this broader pattern of retrenchment? There's no new normal. Um, it's just um, 
marginal changes to the welfare state or marginal changes to safety net programs that will adapt as we move towards a path of retrenchment. So, so a lot of your uh, research uses interviews with program recipients and administrators. Um, tell us about uh, that kind of method uh, relative to surveys or administrative data that um, are used in, in the same kind of field. Um, do you feel like we're getting a consistent picture ac- across those different um, research methods or are different methods giving us different answers? So I, um, I, I have taken up qualitative methods as the way to study the safety net um, because what we knew about the safety net was based on really one program um, and not these other programs that are super important and have expanded since welfare reform. So the goal of qualitative methods from where I sit is to provide uh, rich descriptions of things we don't know about um, and to do some really good theorizing. So if I'm going into policy context that we don't really know about, odds are there are going to be new and different things that are happening in those contexts that we as academics could learn from to develop our own new updated picture of how these programs work. Um, so that's my goal. We actually don't have very good data or hunches around how these programs work. Not, you know, the administrative data on spell length for Medicaid or TANF, or not TANF, uh, SNAP, spell length for Medicaid or SNAP, not that kind of stuff. But literally, what is it like <laughs> for someone to apply what do workers have to do? Like that kind of process. People don't actually know how long it takes to process a SNAP case. But I know that because I interviewed workers and I asked, how long does it take you to do this? So, so and you need that level of information to develop interventions that can hopefully reduce burdens um, for the participant and the worker, right? So um, the administrative data will tell us Um, broader trends, and they'll tell us about outcomes we care about, but they don't tell us about the process that leads to the outcomes. And you can't assume, which is what we've done, you can't necessarily assume that one program works the same as the others. Um, And my job as a qualitative researcher is to provide granular details about how these programs work so that we can develop actionable interventions to reduce burdens and to um, ensure that the programs are actually doing what they say they're supposed to do. So one story of administrative burdens is that um, this is sort of unintentional, uh, and if researchers bring it to uh, the attention of policymakers and administrators uh, like you're doing, uh, then they might uh, change behavior to reduce those administrative burdens. Another story, um, and obviously it's probably some of both, but another story is that uh, administrative burdens are part of this larger back and forth uh, political process uh, that you mentioned, they're part of retrenchment. Some people want to impose more administrative burdens to reduce uh, uh, the number of recipients and the the, uh, amount uh, spent uh, on these uh, programs uh, and to restrict who who has access. So where are we in that? To what extent, um, you know, is the renewed interest in administrative burdens among researchers and uh, frontline administrators actually likely to to reduce them uh, versus everyone's caught in this uh, broader political system where where they're being imposed? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I'm in the camp that it's not um, unintentional. I don't think any of this is benign at all. In part because if you get something like work requirements that's so politically contested, uh, why wouldn't eligibility requirements be politically 
be contested. Why wouldn't the length of a, a, a the length of an application be politically contested? Like, I, I think that, um, again, if you go back to the origins of these programs and, and how it's designed to exclude people who are deemed undeserving, it's hard to divorce politics from the milieu or the minutiae of, of administration or implementation. Um, I do think that, I do think that there, the Biden administration did something really cool in that um, they looked at the administrative state as something that they could shift as opposed to going through legislation to change things. Um, and one thing that I do know is that states and counties, even if to a degree they are captured by local political interest, um, states and counties do care about what the federal government says. So, and unlike, um, uh, unlike opting out of uh, a, a benefit like the pandemic EBT, it's hard to opt out of how many days you have to process a case or the kinds of information you have to collect on a client, right? Or mandates to update your system um, that hasn't been updated in 20 years, right? So um, those things seem a little more apolitical. The means at which you're implementing these program rules um, seem a little more apolitical. And I think it's been cool to watch the, the Biden administration um, figure out ways to circumvent um, the intentional nature of burdens, if that makes sense. So we have a long way to go, but the COVID era child tax credit was supposed to be an innovative new way to make a lasting popular program. Now let's turn to Lopez Santana to find out why that didn't happen. So what were the major findings and takeaways uh, from your new article on support for the child tax credit? So first of all, thank you so much for the invitation. I am really happy to be able to share um, the findings of, of my article. So first of all, I think it's important to say that there's very little research on the child tax credit. Most of the literature on the U.S. welfare state that has dealt with tax credit has um, concentrated on the earned income tax credit. So I think the, the paper makes an important contribution there in the sense that it provides some information and some data on public perceptions, how people use that money, et cetera, et cetera. But when it comes to the article by itself, I think the major findings, first of all, were that when it comes to how he said that Americans perceive families as a group in need, they don't rank as high or as high as other groups, including the age, uh, the working poor, but especially the disabled. So that's the first uh, finding I think that should be emphasized. The second finding that we thought it was quite surprising is that even after people received the checks, five checks or six checks, they didn't change their perceptions about how they view the families as a group in need. So I think those takeaways from the survey are quite important because it tells us a lot about how is it that families as a group in, the, in American society are perceived generally as a group of in need or not, right? And also what type of benefits uh, they deserve, right? Is it more universal? Is it more targeted? And so forth, right? So I think those are 
the main two findings that people should walk away with in terms of the child tax credit. So you have uh, some comparisons uh, to compare the child tax credit to other programs and the recipients of the child tax credit to the recipients of other programs. So mm -hmm. uh, walk us through what, what you compare it to and what you find. So in the paper, what we do is that we ask a bunch of questions about, first of all, support for programs for elderly people, for the disabled, and also for families, That those three groups. Then when it comes to uh, the programs we ask about SNAP, which is typically what we know, food stamps, right? We ask questions about the earned income tax credit, and then we also ask questions about the child tax credit. So the point of reference in, in this paper is are the disabled, the elderly people, and also working families in general. But you did find that these, these programs aren't unpopular. You were just kind of comparing their relative levels of, of popularity, right? So how, how popular exactly. are they and how exactly. they the differences? Right. So w when it comes to the elderly people, they rank in, in the middle in comparison to the disabled. So to put it in another way, the disabled rank on the top in terms of need. I, I believe just looking at, at the data from the paper, um, about 83% of the sample support giving uh, aid to this population. Then when it comes to the older people, about 79% of the respondents supported giving aid to this population. Then the low income were, was about 63%. And then finally, family with children was about 61%. When it came to the programs, uh, SNAP, uh, rank higher, that, that's food stamps, right? Um, higher than the other programs. So that was 63%. The earned income tax credit was 58%. And finally, child tax credit, 54%. So in, in that sense, the findings are consistent because the child tax credit uh, ranked the lowest, right? It's true that it's the majority of the people supported these programs, but in comparison to the other programs, it, it ranked the lowest. And then also when we compare the groups, families also rank the lowest in comparison to the other three groups. So your other surprising finding uh, was that receiving the benefit uh, didn't necessarily increase support uh, for it. So walk us through how you found that um, kind of when you were in the field and what was occurring at the time uh, and, and what you asked to determine that. Sure. So the year that the child tax credit uh, checks came out, right, went out, we sent, um, we serve, we conducted the survey with um, we use YouGov to to run the survey, and we asked uh, about uh, it was close to one thousand respondents the first time whether a, a group of questions about levels of support for these programs that we provided. Also, when we designed the survey, it was uh, designing a way that we ran an experiment. One group of people received. Uh, the questions that basically, how do you support the child tax credit? How do you, whether you support the uh, in, earned income tax credit, whether you support the SNAP and so forth. 
And then the other group of people, instead, what they receive and they responded to it was a description of the program, right? So our sense, to also to get more data, was the idea, okay, perhaps people without having any type of information about these programs will respond differently than if you simply ask them about a program. In the end, it didn't make any difference. The findings were very similar to each other, and then in the end, we merged the data. Then after uh, some time after Thanksgiving, so that was about November, after people received five or six checks, depending on, you know, on, on timing, then we asked the questions again. So about four or five months passed by, and then we asked the same questions with additional questions. So for example, how do you use the money? Uh, whether you were eligible, et cetera, et cetera. And then we ran again the experiment and the surprising, it, it was very surprising for us. The, the responses were almost exactly the same. So it presented a conundrum, right? Because we went into the field with this hypothesis about how is it that support um, by the government will change the perception of these programs, but that wasn't the case. So the proponents of this uh, child tax credit expected that receiving it, you know, would lead to demands for continuing it. It was it was uh, scheduled to be temporary, but the idea was, well, uh, people are going to keep wanting it once they get it. So what are some potential explanations why that didn't turn out to be the case? We we don't have specific data for that, but in the at the end of the paper, we provide some explanations or some potential explanations. First of all. It is the case that most people receive many different types of benefits from the government, right? So it was very difficult for people to really differentiate whether they were getting a stimulus check or whether they were getting benefits from the child tax credit, especially if you got it as a direct deposit, right? So that we, we thought, well, people are not able to differentiate so why is it that they should change their perceptions? They are just getting money from the government. They assume that it's pandemic related, but they can truly differentiate um, one from the other. The other thing that we have been thinking a lot, and also, for example, President Biden hinted at this, it was an issue of framing. How is it that the Democrats were not uh, very effective in framing the child tax credit as support for families, and especially how is it that families as a group have a common set of challenges. So, so for example, uh, childcare, uh, if also in general, if you look at the economy and also the different trends uh, as, as the United States, right? Uh, low fertility rates, uh, compared to other countries, women tend to stay at home at higher rates than in other countries, for example, in other advanced uh, democracies. So this type of framing was not very effective so people can really understand, you know, we're in this together, right? And then finally, of course, at the same time, more or less September, October or so, this is when Republicans really started to talk about how is it that support by the government uh, really was linked to inflation, right? So uh, this idea that 
the, the government was giving people so much money, right? That then in the end, that led us to, you know, down the road that we everyone knows in terms of inflation, right? Whether that's true or not, that's a question. But I think that in, in turn might have affected how people perceive these different type of programs. So as you said, you also conducted a survey experiment uh, where you separated uh, people answering just from the name of the program versus uh, the, the function of the program. Um, and, and you didn't find a big difference there. And it, it seems that might, that might cut against some of these explanations. Uh, like, is it really framing if, um, you know, the program name is, isn't that important? Is it really, you know, these connotations about who the recipients are? If, if people actually do know what the, the program does and just, you know, half the population really just isn't for it. Right. That's a very good point. Right. But but I think to, to some degree, I think that the the findings are very consistent with the literature. Right. Who is uh, the deserving poor? Who are the undeserving poor? What the survey and the paper adds in, in that in, in, in relation to that is this idea, okay, where is it that families fit, right? Families as a group, and one of the issues with this tax credit is that it's universal, right? So the you have all type of families with all sorts of backgrounds, including high income, right? It's true that a, a small percentage of the highest strata didn't have access to the child tax credit, but it's not the same to talk about middle income versus lower income, right? But, but going back to, to the point, I think the idea that the welfare literature has really emphasized how sticky the welfare state is and including the perceptions of how people uh, understand and view certain groups in terms of the need and also how deserving they are. I think the findings are very consistent with that. For the longest time, you know, the disabled, the elderly people, those groups are tend to be seen as the deserving group, right? The the working poor less so, right? If you refer to the poor that are not working, that true those truly go in the under under undeserving category, right? So so in that way, one implication is well, the pandemic wasn't really a critical juncture that really changed the perceptions of people. How is it that they view these groups? And, you know, welfare's uh, policy and social policy is very sticky. It's very difficult to change. And in the same way, it's very difficult to change how is it that people perceive, you know, uh, the, the government, social benefits, and also these groups. So you say it's difficult to change, but we just went through a pretty large expansion of the welfare state that was temporary. Uh, we expanded a lot and then we retracted a lot. Um, so it it seems like, um, you know, there, there was uh, and, and the same kinds of factors were somewhat reflected in, in public opinion. That is, there was support for expansion under COVID and then there was support for not continuing um, some of those benefits afterwards. So is that just normal, you know, thermostatic politics when things increase, <laughs> some people are going to go in the other direction? Um, uh, is that just the normal history of welfare politics that we get expansion and then retrenchment, or was there anything unique about this this period? Well, I I think it's important to say that you know the child tax credit was first introduced under Clinton, right? 
when he uh, and others, of course, uh, decided to end welfare as we know it, right? So then after that, and I think this is uh, consistent with the literature, we see that this program has been in place with incremental changes in the sense that it has become increasingly more generous and more expansive in terms of covering the lowest strata of society. But when it comes to making it a child allowance, right, as it was under Biden, we saw that it was temporary. It was mainly justified because of the pandemic, right? But then after that, we just went back to the regular child tax credit that we have right now, right? So if we refer to what is going to, if it happens, right, uh, the conversation that we're having right now, it will be also about incremental change, right? In the sense that it wouldn't become a child allowance in the same way that many European countries have it. It will just make it more generous and more expensive in terms of the problem with the child tax credit is that it hasn't really covered the most deserving in society, the lower strata. It has been mostly a tax credit for uh, middle income and also with Trump, higher income population also benefited from it. But the most needy for the most part have been left behind, right? So what if we see this reform taking place is just another incremental change and still we we're talking about this will be temporary right it will be until 2025 yeah so as you mentioned um there is action in congress uh on this um and even if it looks like congress isn't doing anything that there is actually a democratic and republican um joint bill um that looks like it has some real opportunity to become law that mere that matches uh, a re-expansion of the child tax credit with um, some business tax incentives, which are also, uh, which have also expired. Um, and so that might suggest that, uh, that they're like, like we discussed earlier, that there's kind of a trade-off between the hidden and the uh, visible welfare state. On the one hand, maybe the visible welfare state, uh, as Biden thought, leads people to know their recipients and mm -hmm. to, to push for it. On the other hand, maybe that just politicizes the issue and bringing it back to, um, you know, what seems like it's tax politics behind the scenes and isn't really welfare politics is actually helpful to getting something to, to rematerialize. Yeah, that's, that's correct, right? If we see what's happening right now, we don't really see that it's being sold as welfare reform. Is that it's being sold as a tax credit, right? It's a tax reform. So in that way, it's a, it's a way of not pushing <laughs> each other's buttons in, in that way, right? We're, and also it's being sold as a trade-off, right? We are expanding for uh, to tackle this population. However, you know, the rich that also benefit from the tax, uh, from the hidden welfare state, right? For, for example, when it comes to tax credits for mortgages and, you know, if you have an enterprise when it comes to healthcare for your employees, you know, you're going to get those type of things at the same time, right? So it's that trade-off, but it's not being sold as welfare reform. Uh, it has been sold 
as perhaps having that potential to reduce poverty, right? Because I think, you know, the message that after the child tax credit expired, poverty went up quite significantly, right? It, it's bad for politics, right? So um, I, I think it's, that's the main reason, right? Why is it that they've been able to do that without major hesitation is because it's been sold as a hidden type of benefit that most people do not understand and don't care about, even if many people benefit from it because the, the data shows that the EITC and the child tax credit are the most beneficial programs, social programs in terms of reducing poverty. So um, that's a, a, a huge takeaway, I think. So you also study uh, European uh, welfare states and, and politics. Um, and I know that these have traditionally been a part of what talks about how the American system is different, that it's more hidden, um, but also that it's less uh, generous to, to the poor. So how, um, how, how did your findings here fit into kind of this, this wider uh, American exceptionalism on, on social welfare um, states? Do you think you would have found the same kinds of stuff everywhere or, or did this repeat the American patterns? No, the, the U.S. is quite unique in that regard. For example, as, as I noted, the, in the U.S., we don't have um, major family policy, right, in, in the European sense. For example, in, in Europe, you have many countries that have these so-called baby checks, right? You get benefits for having child, something similar to the child tax credit. You get child allowances as well. So if you decide that you're going to have a family, there's going to be some type of social assistance uh, that is associated to, you know, to to having kids. In the United States, we know that that's not the case, right? So that's a major difference. And if you look at the data, the United States is ranked, OECD data, it's important to say, right? The U.S. ranks the lowest in terms of percentage of GDP spent on family policy. So when these uh, programs uh, were were being designed uh, and, and first implemented, there was some uh, hope among supporters of a larger welfare state that this would be a, a kind of a ratcheting up opportunity. Um, they thought that they had l learned the lessons from previous uh, stimulus uh, uh, projects uh, that they had um uh, you know, they, they obtained support under a Republican president and large uh, uh, bipartisan majorities to, to pass uh, several uh, major bills that included uh, social welfare uh, expansions. Um, and yet we got all the same politics back. Um, we, you know, soon got uh, complaints about the effect on work, on the uh, effect on inflation, uh, on, you know, the, the same uh, values that that are always used to um, uh, for, to favor welfare state retrenchment, and many of the programs, um, you know, pro or program expansions uh, did not last. So, what do you think the the legacy of, of this will be? And you know, next time uh, there is an opportunity of this uh, sort, uh, will will anything be different? Yeah, that's. Uh and and the paper is interesting in that way, right? So it's a way of how he said that you can publish your null findings because we went into this 
expecting certain things and it did we were quite surprised with the findings right in the sense that families did not get as much support also after people got the checks perceptions didn't change right so in that way, um, what, what is it that we can learn about this? Well, first of all, one lesson for us is that we overestimated the idea that there will be a policy feedback, right? Um, and then actually, once you start to look into the literature, the literature is quite clear about how is that the feed, policy feedback doesn't happen automatically, that it might take years or decades to be able to to be to observe and make those policy feedbacks really tangible, right? So there are some books that talk about 20, 30 years, right? So perhaps in 20, 30 years, we will see that policy feedback about the child tax credit, right? We, we don't really know. Also, perhaps right now what we're seeing uh, is a policy feedback from the Clinton years, right? So that might be one observation. If Democrats, especially, right, uh, want to pass welfare reform, perhaps the road of less resistance is to do it through the tax system, right? Um, you, it, it has been proven that you can actually reach that population and reduce poverty without being so visible, right? So that might be an important lesson for for democrats there's a lot more to learn the science of politics is available bi-weekly from the scannon center i'm your host matt grossman if you like this discussion here are the episodes you should check out next all linked on our website how administrative burdens undermine public programs can democrats design social programs that survive how obamacare and medicaid drive voting does anyone speak for the poor in congress and why rising inequality doesn't stimulate political action Thanks to Carolyn Barnes and Marielle Lopez-Santana for joining me. Please check out their work and then listen in next time.